Yo, this is Sam Sports Podcast. I am Sam Rosenberg. Today is Thursday, May 31st, 2018. Welcome, everyone. And I would like to welcome everyone who's listening to this podcast via Pulp Report as well. Uh, I am also going to be uh, dropping these sports podcasts via the Pulp Report feed on the YouTube station. So thank you for joining me if you're joining me uh, via that platform. Anyway, let's cut to the chase, okay? We've got to talk about Brian Colangelo and these burner Twitter accounts. This thing compliments to The Ringer and Ben Dietrich for breaking this news story uh, Tuesday night, very late. It was probably about five minutes after they uh, announced that Brett Brown just got a three-year contract extension as the head coach of the Sixers. But um, we're getting ready for an NBA Finals, a part four between the Warriors and the Cavaliers. And right now, everything's getting overshadowed by this Brian Colangelo situation. So Brian Colangelo, president of basketball operations for the um, Philadelphia 76ers, very famously was brought in um, to take over for Sam Hinkie. And, you know, essentially, Sam Hinkie was, got approval from the ownership of the Sixers to drive the team into the ground and try to, you know, tank as much as he could to get as many top draft picks. A couple of years went by of this. The league essentially, not officially, but unofficially stepped in and introduced the Sixers to Jerry Colangelo, who then brought in his son, Brian Colangelo. It wasn't long before Hinkie resigned. Brian Colangelo took over, and now he's been running the team ever since. The Ringer drops this story a few other a few days ago, which pretty much outlines a whole bunch of information, but doesn't ma- it makes assertions. It, there's no actual concrete proof. They just say this looks strange. It ends up being a collection of five different Twitter accounts that all seem to have sort of strangely coincidental connections to one another. They seem to tweet in very similar linguistic patterns. They seem to follow a lot of the very same people. Um, And the overlap and coincidence between these accounts is, is a little too too simple to ignore. It's it's too op- too much overlap to think that it could just be happenstance. And the reality is the overlap all seems to tie back to Brian Colangelo. These Twitter accounts are following Sixers uh, players, Sixers media people, um, uh, uh, Sixers front office people. They also happen to follow a lot of people affiliated with the University of Chicago, which is where one of uh, which is where Brian Colangelo's son plays. Um, they also happen to follow a few people, uh, a person who used to be the agent for Brian Colangelo. They also happen to follow a few people in um, Toronto, who you, because Colangelo used to be the GM for the Toronto Raptors. There's a few people who he follows in, in Toronto who are related to the high school that his son went to. Again, all of it looks entirely too coincidental. What's even more damning is how the ringer pretty much set a trap for them when they had done this this lion's share of work and and you know mountains of mountains of time just combing through these tweets. They then call up the Sixers and ask about two of the Twitter accounts, and before they hear back anything from the Sixers, the other three accounts that they didn't mention get switched from public to private. And in Twitter speak, that essentially means you you go dark. You shut off the account so that nobody else can see what the hell's going on. So the fact that these three accounts that they did not mention all of a sudden went dark the day that they call the Sixers looks fucking bad. Then you go a, a step further to have the Sixers call back the ringer that day and say, oh, we spoke to Brian Colangelo. He has confirmed that one of these accounts is in fact 
his. Although he says, the second account you mentioned, oh, that's not me, I'm not affiliated with that, and it's a little weird that somebody else is actually saying shit and uh, might actually be, you know, saying that they're me. So he does actually cop to owning one of these fucking accounts. Then, a week later, essentially right before they break the story, they take the whole thing to the Sixers for comment. Where, in turn, they get a comment from Brian Colangelo where he says, Hey, you know, people do this. People in my profession, I like to follow sports by using anonymous Twitter accounts. And, you know, this one is mine. I don't know who all these other accounts are, and I'd like to know who they are. They leave it at that. Then the story breaks, and now the sports world is up in arms because everyone is jumping in. Everyone's trying to play Sherlock Holmes. Everyone's trying to piece together if this is true or not. Um, Joel Embiid chimed in on Instagram, certainly was like, what the hell? Um, he said, you know, Brian Colangelo called him and said, it's not him. He's like, listen, I believe him. The guy's innocent till proven guilty. You want to believe it on face value. But the reality is when you look at all this evidence together, it looks really bad. Looks really, really, really bad. Bad enough that it's hard to poke holes in it because I think if we could have poked holes in it, if we could have found flaws, the ringer would have found it over the last four months and they wouldn't have published this article. They wouldn't have done this much research, gone this far, and published this fucking bombshell if they didn't think this was fucking accurate. If not, and, and, not, and, and if not accurate, it's 80% accurate. You know what I'm saying? So, like, you know somebody, someone's going to get fucking fired. It's going to come out, something's going to come out, and we're either going to find out that this is all true, or that, you know, somebody was working behind the scenes to, to you, know, uh, you know, slander or embarrass Brian Colangelo. But either way, the tweets and the information that came out, the admitting that, you know, the exposure about Julia Okafor failing his physical and a possible trade to the Pelicans, um, the telegraphing of the Markel Fultz draft day trade, um, bashing Joel Embiid and essentially supporting Ben Simmons, even right down to some guy saying, hey, stop making fun of Colangelo's collar, you know, shirt collars. I mean, this is really as as ridiculously 2018 as you can get. I mean, a, a guy with burner accounts. And now, this is not a new thing. I mean, we saw this with Kevin Durant had a burner account where he got caught. Steve Kerr had a situation where he tried to direct message somebody on his Twitter account and then sent it to everybody. So this is not the first time we've seen NBA personas get caught in hot water playing around in social media and being a little too, you know, sort of you know, freewheeling with the things that they said and then finding out that it's going to come and bite them in the ass. I mean, the fact that Colangelo copped to owning one of these accounts is just scary enough in itself. So I don't fully know how this is going to shake out. I can tell you that the Sixers have officially created an own, their own internal investigation where they're going to look into this because from what we're hearing, the Sixers are shocked too. So if this is true, it sounds like it's either Colangelo or it's a tight-knit group of like some of his underlings who work extremely closely with him. Because from, from our perspective, I don't think the Sixers knew this was going on. I think ownership is shocked. I think the team is shocked. And, and I kind of think most of the front office is shocked, which leads me to believe that Colangelo was probably the only guy doing this on his own. And even when they got called, when the ringer got called back by the Sixers that day, when they confirmed that Colangelo owned that account... They literally said, have you spoken to anybody else? And the person from the Sixers said, I've only talked to Brian Colangelo about this and no one else. Again, looks even worse. So is this going to end with Colangelo getting fired? 
I don't know. Um, I can tell you it's seriously bad for his credibility and his status with the team because that also means that you've got him in meetings with players where he's telling them one thing and then saying something on Twitter. If this is true, it could all be bullshit, but if this is true. You know, another thing to look at is the source. The source is an anonymous tip. It's a person who approached Ben Dietrich, uh, the guy who wrote the article for The Ringer, approached him on Twitter and pretty much said, I've got a scoop, do you want it? And he looked at this, and he didn't identify who he is, but he admitted the fact that he works in artificial intelligence, and he used some open-source data mining, and he was able to piece together this information and cull together these accounts and say, this looks fishy. So, you know, part of what you need to understand is is what is the motivation of this guy? You know, listening to the podcast uh, that The Ringer had on the, on the uh, Ringer NBA show, Chris Ryan and Ben Dietrich came on and talked about this particular um, article and how they put it together. Um, ben Dietrich talks about how he feels the um, the source is somebody who you know is a Sixers fan who is anti Brian Colangelo. You know you can consider that because I'm sure it probably influences your opinion of this story, but it doesn't really negate or hide the degree of of evidence that we're looking at. And the truth is, no one is saying this is concrete and it's real. They're just saying. There's a whole lot of evidence here that looks bad, and it's all pointing to Brian Colangelo, and you know what? You make your own decision. And so, you know, another element which looks even worse is that um, one of the accounts still ballin'. Um, what they were able to deduce was that not long after uh, the ringer contacted the Sixers, in addition to that account, going, that account going dark, that account also unfollowed 37 contacts that all had direct links to Brian Colangelo. So essentially, somebody with that account stopped following people to essentially try to cover up information. It's like, oh, let me make sure, you know, it's like, oh, here's all these things tying me to him. Let me, let's me let get rid of those that evidence, you know? So there's clearly some degree of cover-up or erasure that's trying to happen. It's all seedy. It's all gross. I mean, if it's true... Brian Colangelo might not ever get another GM job, and I can tell you he'll be fired faster than you can say Twitter account. <laughs> so um, I'm really interested to see how this uh, this plays out. I've been talking about that for 10 minutes. Now, let's get to the real story, the NBA fucking finals. I mean, LeBron James and, uh, and, and, and the Cleveland Cavaliers dragging this team to the finals. The Golden State Warriors, though you thought they were against the wall, down 3-2 to the Rockets. I mean... Come on. I mean, listen, the Rockets had a chance with Chris Paul, but as soon as Chris Paul went down, I mean, I feel like it was a foregone conclusion. So the last time I came on this podcast, both series were tied 2-2. That was last Wednesday. Both of them went to a Game 7, and neither of these Game 7s disappointed. I will say that both of the losers succumbed to uh, horrible three-point shooting nights. Let's just talk about LeBron and the Celtics. So LeBron carrying this Cavaliers team. They play Game 7, and essentially Game 6, without Kevin Love. He gets a concussion when he bonks his head. Another one of these chance moments where he bonks his head with Jason Tatum, gets a concussion, misses most of Game 6. I mean, Game 6, listen, this whole thing played out exactly as you wanted to. The home team won every single game. Celtics took care of business at home. Cavaliers take care of business at home. LeBron was brilliant. When it finally came down to a Game 7 in Boston, you can't count out LeBron. Never underestimate the heart of a champion. This guy is the greatest of all time. I'm officially saying I think he might be better than Michael Jordan right now because what he did with this shell of a Cavaliers team on the road in Boston, being able to lock down that defense, to see a game that was hallmarked 
by gritty, gritty defensive play and poor shooting to see where the final score was 87-79 Cavaliers, to see LeBron put up 30 points, 12 rebounds, 9 assists, nearly had a triple-double, not to mention the fact that he's getting, you know, he's blocking Terry Rozier, and of course Jason Tatum did have a facial on LeBron. It was actually the last great moment of the Celtics before the, the Cavaliers just stepped on their throat and suffocated them. But, I mean, it was such a moment where LeBron was the best player on the court, he did everything he needed to, to help his team lock down on this Celtics team. And the reality was the Celtics team, the best option they had was Jason Tatum. And in a weird way, it's almost like his growing pains because he needed to learn that he needed to take over the game. There were too many instances where Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Terry Rozier tried and tried to be that scoring punch, and they just weren't. And the reality was Jason Tatum was the only guy who really showed up in that game. The three-point shooting for this Boston Celtics team was atrocious. It was 17%. It's what killed him in this game. Terry Rozier was 2 of 13 from the field and 0 of 10 from beyond the arc. Marcus Smart couldn't hit anything. I mean, it was really amazing how when the going got tough in Game 7, LeBron James has been there before and these guys hadn't. And I'm just going to throw this out there. Pressure. Okay? Pressure, pressure, pressure. I had a acting teacher in college who said, listen, here's a trash can. I want you to take this crumpled piece of paper and throw it into that trash can. And then I want you to do it three times in a row. And then I want you to do it three times in a row with everybody in the room cheering for you. And inevitably, everybody, once they got to that third stage where they had to do it three times in a row with everybody cheering for them, they would screw up. And he would say, guys, that's pressure. Game seven, all of a sudden, it's hard to hit those three-point shots, Terry Rozier. It's hard to hit those three-point shots, Marcus Smart. It's hard to finish around the rim and really complete that shot when it's game seven and all the money's on the line and it's you. And you know who doesn't choke in those situations? LeBron James. This guy is made for it. Played all 48 minutes in this game. I mean, to, to think that Jeff Green was the number two scorer behind LeBron, to think that he showed up, a guy who has eternally not showed up for years, to see him be the second option for this LeBron James team, hitting three-pointers, going to the bucket, and then finally relying on guys like Tristan Thompson, who, listen, he has been a grit-and-grind player this entire, you know, this entire playoff run, and he showed up in that game, and then right when you needed him, J.R. Smith hits a couple of huge three-point shots. I mean... This is, listen, I, this team, this is the shittiest team that LeBron has taken to the finals, but the fact that he is now in his eighth straight finals and that he is shouldering this team, the fact that he's played over 100 games this season, the fact that he played all 48 minutes in game seven, I mean, it's remarkable. And you know what? I know they're, they're the underdog against this Warriors team, but my God, they are going to give them some trouble. I'm telling you right now, it is not going to be a cakewalk for Golden State. Let's talk about the Warriors and the Rockets. So this game, this also went to seven. Um, Rockets go up 3-2 with Chris Paul really doing what he did. But at the end of game five, he pulls a hamstring. Long story short, he misses game six and seven. And game six, Houston actually came out and threw some haymakers and took the lead. But I mean, it was in Oakland. You come out in the second half, in the third quarter, Klay Thompson went fucking ballistic, starts scoring from all over the floor, and all of a sudden, he and Steph Curry are just killing you. You know, listen, you'll take that on the chin. You go back to Houston. This is what you've been playing all season for, to have that home game seven in Houston to go up against Golden State. 
Everything was on their side. They just had to execute, and they had to figure out a way to keep Golden State contained so they could at least get through to the end and squeak out that wind. And it, it couldn't happen. It didn't happen. I mean, it didn't happen. There were so many things that went Houston's way in Game 7. Clay Thompson getting three fouls in the first four minutes. Um, the, the Warriors playing probably their worst quarter of basketball, all playoffs in the first quarter of that Game 7. Houston came out looking good. Um, they had some good rotations. I mean, they were getting good shots. And then, I mean, the start of the second half, the wheels came off the wagon. And again, just like the Celtics, Houston Rockets missed even more three-pointers. I mean, they absolutely went cold from beyond the arc. I thought the Celtics looked bad from beyond the arc. Houston Rockets set a NBA, an NBA playoff record, most three-pointers missed in an NBA postseason game. They missed 27 straight three-pointers, and it was their undoing, okay? At that, that was when the Warriors took the lead. That was when they went ahead. That was when they started hitting three-pointers like it was fucking going out of style, and, the, you know, the Rockets just kept shooting and kept shooting and kept shooting and kept shooting. You know, you know, Eric Gordon, James Harden, these guys, they just kept shooting. And how are you supposed to tell them no? That's what they that's how they've been playing all season. That's what Mike D'Antoni's been touting. I mean, this this has worked. But finally, again, I'm telling you pressure, pressure in game seven. It is harder to miss. It's harder to hit those three point shots. And it was no better on display in that game. And the Warriors came up, they took over, and they dominated. Even with the Warriors not having Andre Iguodala for four games in that series, even with the Warriors having the largest bench of big men that they never play, and virtually no depth beyond friggin' Sean Livingston and fucking Swaggy P, I mean, they still were able to dismantle this Rockets team at the end where you just, you felt bad for the Rockets because it felt like they gave every single thing they could, and if God, if Chris Paul was out there, maybe it would have been a different story. But to see them miss 27 straight three-pointers, you know, my dad said it the other day, when you start missing, sometimes it's contagious. And I think some of that happened in that Game 7. And listen, it was a great season for Houston. But once again, fourth straight year, fourth straight year, Golden State Warriors, Cleveland Cavaliers in the finals. I mean, I kind of hate the fact that we're seeing the same matchup. I don't like that, but I got to admit, this Warriors team is fun to watch, and I love LeBron James. That's some of the best television I could have ever asked for. I mean, every year, the Cavaliers should lose this matchup. But to think that they actually won in 2016 when the Warriors won 73 games, I mean, that sort of always puts you on edge. Like, oh shit, there's a chance. There's a fucking chance they could win this game. Iguodala's not going to play game one tonight. Uh, they just announced Kevin Love is going to play game one tonight. It'll be in Oakland, um, 9 o'clock Eastern, 6 o'clock Pacific. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to start in about an hour and a half. Um, I'm telling you right now, this is going to be an interesting game, or an interesting series to say the least. Um, I think the matchups will be fascinating. I, I do, I mean, listen, Golden State is heavily favored. That's, it's not a, that's not a shock. Who on Cleveland is going to guard Kevin Durant? You know, how many times can you put LeBron James on Steph Curry? You know, we're going to see some similar things that we've seen in the past, but, you know, whereas you saw Kyrie Irving bring a certain element to this Cavaliers team, they're going to be missing that this year. And, you know, the Warriors are going to punish him for it. If anything, I would say the Cavaliers could take advantage of the lack of the Warriors' depth, the fact that they've got Zaza Pachulia and JaVale McGee who never get on the floor. Um, but at the same time, the Cavaliers don't have any depth. I mean, Rodney Hood is not getting any playing time right now. Um, 
you know, Larry Nance and Jordan Clarkson, I think, have been better in the rotation, but Clarkson's a terrible defender. Um, J.R. Smith is completely erratic as uh as as Kyle as exciting as Kyle Korver is, he's a bad defender, and you know this Warriors team is just going to cook on him. And I think that for all the excitement and and sort of the you know they'll I think Cleveland will be exciting offensively. There'll be a few games where I think they get the three ball going and LeBron James is able to get his guys going. But truthfully, I mean it feels like every single game Cleveland's going to throw some haymakers and Golden State's just going to wait them out and then the third quarter score like fifty points with eight hundred three pointers. So. I mean, I I, I want to see the matchups. I want to see how they how this game one plays out. Um, LeBron likes to call this a feel out game. Well, let's see how he feels this one out because they might need to try to win this feel out game because I don't know they might drop the first two in Oakland. Just being real. Um, my prediction: I'm really excited to see the series, but I'm picking Golden State in five games. I know it was Golden State in five games last year, but listen, this is this is a much worse Cavaliers team without Kyrie Irving, without Isaiah Thomas. I mean, every piece that they got in all of these trades, you know, none of them are really sticking out. I mean, the most valuable guy they got was probably George Hill. And I don't really think George Hill is going to be a difference maker against Klay Thompson and Steph Curry. And, you know, you still got Draymond. Draymond and Tristan Thompson are going to be smashing heads all throughout this series. And, I mean, the fun is not going to stop, but I got to pick Golden State in five games. Let's, I mean, they are the Goliath. They're on top of the mountain. As long as they have Kevin Durant in addition to their big three, I mean, this is a dynasty. Let's see how long this goes. We might see the Warriors getting in the finals the next two, three years at that. Um, all right, that's all. I'm getting out of here. Thanks a lot for listening to Sam Sports Podcast. You can subscribe to my podcast um, on Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Um, you can also subscribe uh, to Pulp Report on the YouTube channel. There's also a Pulp Report channel on SoundCloud as well. Uh, so you can go to SoundCloud to reach uh, either one of our feeds. Pulp Report's got a lot of uh, great pop culture, um, as well as movies, other sports as well. Um, Din Thomas from MMA Fighting is going to be on uh, Pulp Report as well. Great stuff, great stuff. Um, uh, you can also email me at samsportsstation at gmail.com. You can follow my Facebook page, Sam Sports Station. You can follow me on Instagram at Sam Sports Station. You can follow me on Twitter at SmithFaceJones. Um, and that's it. I'm getting out of here. Thanks a lot for listening. Enjoy game one of the NBA Finals tonight. And uh, I'll be back next week to check in and see exactly how that series is playing out and uh, exactly how these matchups are looking. Uh, all right. Talk to you next week. Take it easy. Enjoy the games. Bye-bye.